if you combine the gospel accounts, you discover eight scenes that reveal the truths surrounding Christ's boyhood and, of course, his birth. And we've taken a look at several of these. The first scene is his birth in a stable and the shepherds who came to deliver to them the announcement that they had heard from the angels. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 7 to 20. Uh, the second scene takes place when Jesus is eight days old as he undergoes circumcision and identification with the covenant family of Abraham. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 21. The third scene is a month later. You remember where Mary and Joseph take their month-and-a-half-old baby boy to the temple to present him to God. They pay their five shekels and redeem him from God according to the law. And we also watched as Mary brought the offering of the poor, they called it, because all she could afford was two birds as an offering to atone for her own uncleanness that defiled her according to the law that came with childbirth. That's Luke 2, 22 through 24. Then you have to go over to Matthew chapter 2 where you have the fourth scene. It's in the living room of their home. Joseph is away at work. Mary's at home with Jesus, now a toddler, and they receive a rather surprising visit from wise men. They are king anointers from Persia, their homeland. That's Matthew two eleven to 12. Soon after this visit, scene 5 opens with Joseph and Mary escaping as fugitives to Egypt. They're running for their lives as they head out in the middle of the night to avoid the death edict pronounced by Herod on all the baby boys in Bethlehem ages 2 and under. That's Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Scene number 6 shows us Joseph and Mary less than two years later, more than likely, returning with Jesus to Nazareth to live now that Herod has died. That allows us to time it just so. That's Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Scene 7 sort of sweeps us into the temple where 12-year-old Jesus is asking and answering questions in front of the religious leaders. It's in this scene where God has delivered to Jesus enough revelation to where Jesus now knows that he is uniquely the son of God whom he calls there his father. That's Luke 2, 41 to 49. Now scene 8 is the longest scene of all. It will last 18 years in Nazareth as Jesus Christ grows up from the age of 12 to around the age of 30. He will eventually step out into the public square and announce that he's more than uh, the son of a carpenter. That's a scene that is encapsulated in one verse. We have even less, (laughs) and this is the longest scene But it's Luke chapter 2, verse 52. I want you to turn there as we wrap up our study today. Luke 2, 52. Just one verse that will summarize what happened in this little village called Nazareth. And Jesus, Luke writes, kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. By the way, this is normal language for growth It's really not all that unique. In fact, in the Old Testament account of Samuel's growth, the text is similar. It reads, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. 
1 Samuel 2.26. In Luke's account of John the baptizer's growth as a little boy, he writes in chapter 1 and verse 80, and the child continued to grow and became strong in spirit. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 40, here in Luke's gospel, he writes of young Jesus, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When you arrive at Luke chapter 2, verse 52, you, you enter a scene that, that provides even more mystery for us regarding the boyhood of Jesus. Now, some would believe that, that Jesus had all the wisdom he needed uh, when he was born, and, and he just simply increased along the way. But he had it all then. Well, Luke informs us that Jesus advanced He increased in three ways. In fact, you might circle the three nouns that appear in your text. He increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor. I would agree with one scholar, a Greek scholar by the name of Lenski, that these nouns are datives of relation. And the imperfect tense, Jesus kept increasing tells us not only that he had progressed at this point, but that he would continue to progress in these attributes. The truth is we find it hard to believe, don't we, that Jesus ever developed in any way. That's why I'm making the point. Being the perfect child, it must have meant that his development was already perfected. He was the wisest 18-month-old anybody had ever heard jabber away. That would have violated the human nature that he had and the normal boy that he was, yet without sin. The truth is, it would have been possible for Jesus to do something unwise without sinning. Being unwise is not the same thing as sin. Aren't you glad about that? As you develop in your wisdom, as you walk in the ways of God, and we'll talk a little bit about what that word means. But Jesus here is 100% human. That means as he progressed, Luke wants us to know, and Luke, by the way, is the doctor. He's a medical doctor, and and he's the one that gives us this kind of language in his gospel alone. Jesus is going to progress from immaturity to maturity. As I mentioned in our last discussion, from silliness to sobriety. He, He will progress from naivety to discernment. He he will move from uninformed actions that made dumb or even dangerous decisions, as little boys often do, to informed actions. Jesus was not God-humanized or a human deified. The mystery of the incarnation is that he had a divine nature and a human nature intermingling in that mystery. He was 100% God and 100% man. All at the same time, he caught a cold. Just like every child developing his immune system. His nose ran. He sneezed. He stubbed his toe. He smashed his finger. He might have needed a nightlight too. As he grew, he would fight temptation like any young man. The difference being he would never fail one time. Uh, The author of Scripture doesn't want us to miss this. That's why you get into certain texts and and it's a mystery when it speaks of him in ways and you think, wait wait a second. You have to understand he's 100% human. 
as well as 100% God. He was tempted in every point as we, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. You discover the implications of that phrase. He was tempted just like we were in every point. And you discover somebody who can feel exactly what you feel. You discuss this with someone who ignores the implications of the incarnation and they're already bored. Yeah, yeah, God became a man. Yeah, we, we know that. But, but you're thinking all along that Jesus is running around Nazareth. He has a robe on like all the other little boys did in the custom of the day. But underneath is this Superman suit. The bullets, you know, will only bounce off his chest. If they only knew, he could never get hurt. That's not the truth of the incarnation. He would have scratched his knees up playing with the village boys just like they did. He would have burned his tongue on hot cider until he learned better. When it was cold, he got cold. When it was hot, he got hot and sweaty as he worked outdoors or in the shop. I love the choice of inspired verb here. He grew, he developed, he kept on increasing. Procapto. You could render it, he advanced. In fact, it isn't a word for just any advancement because we would you know, think, okay, of course he did. Now the word carries the idea of making headway, of forging ahead. One Greek scholar said this verb can refer to metals being lengthened out by hammering. It was used of cutting down trees to make a way. That's the word here. And I say all of that because, you know, you read, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, and and you're tempted to say, well, of course. I mean, what do you expect? How easy could it be for him? But the opposite was true. Because of who he was, his advancement was a billion times more difficult than ours more difficult than any human being. His was even tougher. Why? The relentless, concentrated attack of demonic forces to try and cause him to sin. The knowledge of his his nature, divine nature, over time as he grew, which would easily cause him to struggle, if not chafe, against the limitations of humanity. The sensitivity of his perfect nature, divine nature, to those around him could have caused him to become cynical or rude. Jesus advanced, the verb is, advancing like a ship in a storm, like a woodcutter swinging his axe until his muscles burned. He made headway like a runner, running, determined to finish the race against heavy winds and pelting rain. In other words, this verb, to increase, carries the idea of hard work, monotonous labor. Every step forward is a, is a, is a moral victory, is a spiritual victory, just like you. As you struggle to take the next step. Let me ask you, has advancement in the Christian life ever come easy for you? Or have you discovered yet that the Christian life is, is impossible? Do you ever feel like you're trying to walk with Christ, but the wind is pushing against you? You're trying to run the race, but it keeps raining? 
Have you ever felt like you're cutting down trees to make the path and you look at the next massive tree and you think, are you kidding? And you cut it down and two weeks later it grows right back up. Jesus Christ would understand the challenge because he was 100% human. I'm aware that to talk of him like this is strange. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on him sneezing. I don't think we take the time to explore the verbs, the texts related to his incarnation. Some who don't know me might think that I'm denigrating the Savior. No, I don't want you to believe that. In fact, as we understand more of even his boyhood, it causes us to delight even more in in the Savior. He understands what it means to, to grow in wisdom and grace against the normal resistance of the human condition with all its weaknesses. In the garden, when you understand this, you come to those texts and you understand. He will weep with loud tears and crying. Hebrews 5, 7. Loud tears and crying. He'll, he'll effectively say in Mark 14, 36, Father, if there's another way we can do this without that, let's do it. He's speaking as a man. For every believer... Jesus Christ, the man, shows us that advancement is possible, but we have to, like him, bend our will to the Father. We have to have our will hammered out, as it were. We, we, we must swing the axe of the woodsman. And like a runner, we have to face the wind and push on, pleading for the help of the Spirit of God. You know, legend cannot stand this kind of conversation. And I have laced in through our study some of the legends, the apocryphal writings. And here, too, again, uh, the, the early church, the medieval church, pretty much erased these kinds of thoughts from our minds related to his boyhood. I mean, surely he had it made. I mean, Mary and Joseph, they, they're king and queen. You look at the medieval paintings, if you've ever been in a museum, and, and, and you see Mary and the baby seated, they're on thrones. They're, they're on floors of mosaic patterns. They're under gentle, swaying trees and canopies of blue and gold, and they're lavishly dressed, and they're they're, they're, the fabric of their gowns is embroidered in gold. And that's what we would conceive of. One apocryphal writing, the Gospel of Thomas, said that Jesus assembled the boys in his village. They put their garments on the ground and he sat upon them. Then they put on his head a crown wreathed of flowers and like attendants waiting upon a king. They stood in order before him on his right hand and on his left. And whoever passed that way, the boys took by force crying, Come hither and adore the king and then proceed upon thy way. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody is bowing before 14-year-old Jesus. Joseph and Mary did not live under canopies of blue and gold. Their floor was made out of dirt. They moved into this insignificant village, Nazareth. They, they lived simple, hardworking lives. They were poor peasants. His dad, virtually a migrant worker, owned very little. In fact, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he owned nothing but the clothing on his back. 
And at the age of 30 or so, when he preached his first sermon in Nazareth, everybody said, isn't that the carpenter's son? Paraphrased, who does he think he is? Nobody said, we knew it. We've been bowing down to him since he was 14. I mean, the clothing he always had on his body. Where did it come from? It's amazing. We, we, we figured that out a long time ago. No, they didn't. Him? The Messiah? He must have bumped his head in the shop one too many times. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is that Jesus' life was so normal as a boy growing up, so uneventful, so typical, so humble, so nondescript, that when he made his announcement, no one believed him, especially those that had grown up with him. But all the while, without anybody really paying attention, and Jesus in that mystery even coming into a fuller and fuller knowledge of it as he grew, something was happening. And this text tells us that he was progressing in four, we'll outline it this way, four different aspects. We'll call the first progression intellectual ability. Luke writes that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, Sophia. Sophia for the believer is the appropriate application of God's truth to life. It is God's word lived out. A wise person isn't somebody who knows more than everybody else in the church. It's the person who demonstrates the truth that they're learning. So he would have had to have learned then as well in order to demonstrate it, right? Of course, along the way, he would have learned that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and, and uh, he had to learn to read and write. The gospel writers indicate that he did both. So he had an education. But most importantly, he had to learn the sacred writings of the Old Testament. And now, during the days of Christ, in fact, for centuries before his birth and after his birth, a Jewish child's education began in the home. His parents were his first teachers. They would have taught Jesus and the other siblings they had whenever they sat down on the house to talk, whenever they sat at the table to eat, whenever they went out on the way to walk or work or ride, and even before they laid down and got up in the morning. Their lives were bibliocentric, so to speak. God's truth, the Old Testament, which was what they had, was laced into their conversations. It included God. Then around the age of five or six, a Jewish child was sent to school to what they called in Jesus' day the house of the book. Now, the school was attached to the local synagogue Every village had a synagogue, according to the law, and every synagogue had its school. Edersheim's classic work on the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, that he presented to the faculty of Oxford in 1931, revealed from archaeologists' findings and manuscripts extant and historians living during the days of, of Jesus, that great care was given to the education of a child in the house of the book typically taught by the leaders of the law, rabbis, whoever would be the officer of the synagogue, typically. In fact, I read that great care was taken not to send a child too early to school, nor to overwork him 
when there, oh, that my, my school had felt the same way, yours, right? History records for us that school hours were fixed and attendance was shortened during the summer months. In many ways, the synagogue provided a foundation for the Western educational system, although we would all agree that the Bible is certainly not in the curriculum in most schools, at least of those promoted by our, our Western world. The teacher was often elevated on a little platform, if he had enough sticks to put together, and the students sat around him on the floor in a circle, semicircle. The classes, of course, would be small in a little village like this. It would have almost been like having a, a personal tutor. The, the rabbis considered that half circle of students to be their crown. It was their love and their life. As they sat at the feet, uh, being covered, the rabbis would speak with the wisdom that came from the dust of the feet. Of course, this explains then Paul's comment, or of him in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. It was literal. For the first five years of a child's studies, once he entered school, the Old Testament was the chief textbook. They were taught to read and to write their common language, which would have been Aramaic, but more importantly, the language of their law, which was Hebrew. For those of you that have learned the Hebrew language, you may have found, as I did, that it is a very difficult language to learn. I always envy my Jewish brothers and sisters here in the church that are redeemed, who've come to faith in Christ, but raised to know the Hebrew. Uh, I was at the mall a couple of days ago with everybody else frantically finishing up and had, had uh, my kids with me. In fact, it's a little tradition they, for each other so that we know they get what they want, and uh, then they buy surprises for their mother. I was with one of my daughters at this particular juncture, and we're walking down and in the main hallway, of course, the main aisle. They have these kiosks, and you can have even more opportunities to go in debt as you walk down the, the mall. And one lady at one particular booth had a tray out with little cups, and I walked by, and she held it out to me, and I looked in, and it was lotion. It wasn't edible. I would have stopped had it been that, but it, it was lotion. And she offered it to me. She said something to me, and I knew immediately her language. She was, she was from somewhere else. And I asked her, you know, where, where are you from? She was a Jewess. She was raised in Russia, and she'd lived in Israel. And I said, oh, I wish I knew Hebrew like you did. In fact, I asked her what languages she spoke. She said Russian and Hebrew. I invited her to our church, told her who I was, and that I had spent time you know, slugging through the Hebrew language. You need to understand that for Jews living in Jesus' day, it was probably just as convoluted. She came to carry, if you can imagine it, via Russia and Israel. The Jews in Jesus' day had lost their native tongue. They had learned to speak Aramaic and Babylon. That was the official language of their captivity. They had forgotten Hebrew. Their sons primarily had to be taught Hebrew. For men destined to teach the scriptures, they had to learn to read and write in Hebrew so that they could then translate it into Aramaic and teach it to people who could understand it. Our Lord's discourses were for the most part in Aramaic. So we know from his first sermon in Nazareth that he got up to read and he read from the scroll in, in Isaiah. That means he knew how to read Hebrew. He'd learned it. And I also discovered that his first studies 
as a five-year-old in the house of the book, it was their custom to begin the lessons in the Pentateuch, specifically at the book of Leviticus. Then they'd work through different sections of the Pentateuch and on into uh, the prophets. They would not allow anybody to copy anything from the scriptures because they were so careful to preserve it. But they did make an exception for a teacher to be able to copy sections of it for teaching children. That's how dedicated they were. So the very first lesson that little Jesus would have sat at at the feet of his teacher in the house of the book would have been Leviticus, what we call chapter 1, verse 1. And of course, for the sake of time, I won't have you turn, but let me read you what his first lesson would have involved. Here's the text of Scripture. Leviticus begins, God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them, when anyone presents an offering to God, present an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a whole burnt offering from the herd, present a male without defect at the entrance to the tent of meeting, that it may be accepted by God. Lay your hand on the head of the whole burnt offering so that it may be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Imagine Jesus Christ's first school lesson was on the unblemished sacrifice for the atonement and forgiveness of the sinful human race which he had come to fulfill. Jesus wasn't born with the ability to read and write in Hebrew. He advanced. He increased. He went through his studies like you and I did. Secondly, Jesus advanced in physical maturity. Luke also writes in this verse that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. You could render that age or even more literally height. It's another way of saying he grew up. Uh, in our home, my three brothers and I, my, we had, you know, as we grew up, we had one door frame and, and it would be marked. And we'd you know, stand on our tiptoes, do everything we possibly could to, to somehow get closer to our older brother. And, and I hated that because of the four boys, I was the run of the litter. And I was shorter by at least a foot and a half from my older brother and only inches above my other brother beneath me who was four years younger than me. So I didn't really like it. So I cheated every way I could to make it look like I was taller. I wanted to grow up. I wanted to be big. Can you imagine Jesus Christ feeling that too? He wanted to grow up. He wanted to get big. He'd flex his muscles to his half-sisters. He'd wrestle his father. He'd race. He'd run. He'd tell his exploits of catching that fish. Although he'd be telling the truth. It was really just about that big of a fish. It wasn't that big of a fish, right? He grew up. He... he, he, he all male Jews, by the way, as they grew, even those destined to be doctors of the law, were expected to learn a trade. It was required that the Jewish father teach his son what the rabbis called, and I quote, an honest craft, for to fail in this is to teach him crime. Prepare him for a life of crime. So the apostle Paul, you remember, even though he was preparing to be a rabbi, he knew how to make what? Tents. 
He'd learned the craft of tent making, probably his father's occupation. So Jesus was taught carpentry. This was the craft of his stepfather. He learned to size up a piece of wood like some of you can, know exactly where to cut it, know where the problems might be, maybe even not bend it. For carpenters in, in Nazareth, in, in this first century, the chief task would have been to carve plows for the farmers to use. But just for a moment, slip into his sandals. You're 16, 17, 18. You know who you are now. You know who your father is. But imagine, between 12 and 30, 18 years, he dropped sweat over that plank of wood as he sawed and sanded and nailed. I couldn't help but imagine. Just think, no, he's in there. He's alone. Nobody's looking. Why didn't just twinkle his nose? Or snap his finger. Whew, there it is. A finished plow. A, a finished, polished table. Imagine the business he could have cranked out for his dad. I don't know how Joseph does it. It's amazing. Was he a good carpenter? Yes, and by the way, he didn't perform any miraculous signs until the hour of his announcement, which means he spent hours laboring in the shop. Justin Martyr, the second century church leader in Galilee, made the interesting comment that farmers were still using the plows that Jesus had carved 75 years later. So he was growing up, and he was evidently accepting the responsibility of what that meant as he learned his craft, even, even though he knew that one day he'd leave it. It wouldn't matter. He developed that kind of integrity and maturity. Third, Jesus increased in spiritual intimacy. Jesus, Luke writes, kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God. Now that translation can be misleading to an English student. In fact, cults love this verse. They use it as a proof text. That as Jesus grew up, he became more and more a favorite of God. It's not what it's saying. The word favor is charis or grace. The next word, in fact, in the Greek text is the word para, alongside of. We use this word for para or parachurch ministry. It isn't a ministry directly related or funded by a local church, but it is a ministry alongside the church. It is a complement to the church. Jesus is not gaining grace from God. You could translate the phrase, Jesus grew in grace alongside of, as he walked beside God the Father. That's the meaning. So the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father was a, a growing relationship marked by charis, marked by grace. I, I couldn't help but think of how Christ reflects our desire, and he also reveals our failure. But he models our future. Perfect fellowship, unbroken by selfishness and sin, one day eternally unbroken, unselfish, uncluttered, unending, transparent, 
intimacy with God our Father. We see it as Jesus grows and pulls away many times to spend a a night in prayer with his Father. He grew in this. He developed in this over time. Fourthly, he increased in social integrity. Luke writes, Jesus grew in favor with man. Alongside of man, he demonstrated grace. By the way, this doesn't mean that he, he grew more popular with people. In fact, just the opposite is true. In Luke 4, where he gave that, that signature sermon, that was the moment when the Lord began, at least in that village, his ministry, and he will read from Isaiah, and then he will sit down and expound on it. He will immediately apply it to himself. He is the fulfillment of this. And he will read, now knowing and fully demonstrating his omniscience, their hearts, their thoughts. He will know their stubbornness. He will read it on many of their faces. Look, we know who you are. You're you're the carpenter's son. Who do you think you are? We're not about to follow you as some prophet, as some messianic gift. We're not buying it. And, and, and they became so infuriated that when Jesus finished his message, they threw him out of the synagogue. And as a mob, they led him up to a cliff where they intended to throw him to his death. That was his first sermon in his hometown. He could have snapped his fingers and Nazareth could have gone up in a mushroom cloud. He knew them. He had never done them wrong. They were his boyhood friends, associates, and clients. And he had meticulously carved for many of them their plow that would last their lifetime. Instead of snapping his fingers and poof, he demonstrates grace as he walks beside mankind. He slips away miraculously. They lose sight of him. And he moves on. What grace. He grew in his graciousness alongside of people's offensive behavior. He withheld the full display of his power and judgment. He submitted to the agony of the cross. Why? Because he would fulfill his very first lesson as a boy in Leviticus chapter 1. He would be the unblemished, atoning lamb. You know, if we had Joseph and Mary here today, what would you ask them? What was it like to raise the perfect child? Did you know? What were the clues? How did you treat Jesus and and his half-brothers and sisters knowing whenever there was an argument, it would never be Jesus' fault? How did you handle, you know, James complaining? You never get on to Jesus. I'd ask him if he ever gave Jesus a spanking. I asked you that question last week. Don't you to think about it. Did Jesus ever get a spanking? 
I'll give you my best guess. It's not in the Bible. In fact, it's not even in the Apocrypha. This is just just a guess, okay? (laughs) Here it is. The Old Testament clearly prescribed corporal punishment, a rod. I believe Jesus experienced the rod, but not because he was imperfect, but because his parents were. And there were times when they got it wrong. You know, we were sitting around the table at Christmas Day, and our twins are now almost 24, and daughter 22, another daughter 16. And my wife and I, we were talking about Christmas and the characters in these scenes. And, and uh, they had heard me pose this question, and you should have heard the debate and discussion. And uh, the fact that I would even pose a question outside the theological constraints of the Scriptures, but I posed it. And I said, well, let me ask you guys something. Did I ever give you a spanking you didn't deserve? And both boys said, absolutely. (laughs) Maybe you want to spank them all over. No, I'm teasing. I I apologize. In fact, I'm doing a lot of that now as I think back how often I got it wrong. But I can remember growing up. I remember, I don't know, 11 or 12 years of age, sitting in that big black overstuffed chair in our living room where my brothers and I grew up. And... uh, we were supposed to be doing our homework, which I always enjoyed doing, and so I was sitting there alone, working away. And, but it was, it was Halloween, and uh, that was coming up that night. And that was in a different era. Some of you are old enough to remember that. You'd get a pillowcase, and you'd come back with three or four bags that last you for eight months if you used some constraint. But uh, at any rate, we had a mask, which we never had. They'd got it from a kid in the neighborhood. It was a scary mask, and I was playing with it sitting in that chair. My mother came in and she took that mask away and she said, Steve, Stevie, whatever it was, it was Stephen later after I graduated, um, you do your homework and don't touch that mask until you finish it. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she went downstairs and she put it up in the closet on the top shelf. And so I went back to my homework. My, one of my younger brothers waited about two minutes, went down into that closet, got the mask and came up and was playing with it. And I said, you're going to get in trouble. He's supposed to do his homework too. You're going to get in trouble if mom sees you with that. And he was laughing. And then we heard mom's feet coming down the stairs toward us. He threw the mask in my lap just as she rounded the corner and ran away. <laughs> no, it's not funny. It is not, it is not funny. She yanked me out of that chair. I mean, before I could defend myself or you know, quote scripture or anything and gave me a spanking. And and I have reminded her often and she listens to my sermons and she's going to hear this and she's going to go, oh, I did it wrong. Well, oh, I got one and I didn't do anything wrong that time. Can you imagine, can you imagine being Joseph? Imagine being given the task of teaching the living word Imagine referring to prophecies of Scripture to the one who'd come to fulfill them. God effectively told a migrant worker, not a doctor of the law, a carpenter, I want you to teach the one who will become the greatest teacher to ever walk the planet. You prepare him for that. 
he, like every parent in this room, would have said, I am not capable. I'm not qualified. I get it wrong. When you think about the, the, the record of Scripture, I wonder if Joseph ever thought, why, why Joseph of Nazareth? Why not Joseph of Arimathea? He was wealthy, trained, had access to tutors. He, he was looking, the Bible says, for the kingdom of God. He loved the law. The Bible says he was a righteous man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. There's a man qualified. Uh, that's the one to pick. One of the stork got it wrong. Joseph of Nazareth, it was supposed to have been Joseph of Arimathea. I wonder if he felt that way. What would you ask Mary? Mary, were you ever up to this task? Now, now the legends and, and the Apocrypha and, and centuries of church tradition would have said, oh, she knew everything and she was perfectly qualified. No. In fact, as we studied together, uh, her first recorded words to 12-year-old Jesus were an ill-timed, undeserved, unwise scolding of Jesus. She probably thought later on, boy, I got that wrong. But this is great news. Because if God would choose them to parent the Messiah. Maybe he knows what he's doing as he asks us to do what he's asked us to do. And whom has he chosen in this age? Let me paraphrase Paul's writings to the Corinthians. Think about your appointment. Think about your calling. Whatever it is. Consider the place where God has appointed you. Have you noticed God did not choose among the brilliant? Not many with noble upbringing, not many with powerful connections. He has chosen the ordinary students to teach the brilliant. He has chosen the weak and insignificant people in the eyes of the world to radically impact those who seem to be on top of it all. That's how God does it. I love the words of the songwriter. Mary, did you know that your little boy will one day walk on water? Did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you, when you kiss the little baby, your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. You know, having studied carefully these texts, I can say with certainty that Mary did not know. Not fully. 
nor did Joseph. The boyhood of Jesus was a mystery to them both, and they were unlikely candidates to parent this perfect child. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, and I'll leave you with this, apart from the Holy Spirit who who dwells within us, we are all unlikely candidates to accomplish whatever it is that God has appointed us to do. But I want you to consider, of all the things that you might want to accomplish and hope to fulfill, begin here. Progress here. Put your face to the wind here. Swing your axe here. At verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, that we also might develop our understanding and application of God's word. That we also might grow up. That we might walk alongside God our Father And that we might demonstrate grace and integrity to those who live around us. It's a great place to start and stay. It's a great model to follow and live. If you know Christ personally, these are great aspects in which to ask his spirit to allow you to progress and to grow. Well, why don't we stop for just a moment and you ask the Lord, perhaps in one of these areas where there's needed growth to give you the strength to get back out in the storm and the stiff wind to pick up the axe. Maybe it's the discipline of learning and growing in the Word which produces wisdom. Perhaps one of the, one of the greatest most effective decisions you could make today would be this year, this coming year, that you would read the Scriptures from cover to cover. Or maybe memorize a key text or two of Scripture. Maybe a chapter. Maybe a book. Perhaps for you, the challenge is to accept responsibility and grow up. And that can happen at any age. The responsibilities that God has given us now, accept them. Brace against the wind and keep moving forward. Maybe it's your prayer life and that intimate walk alongside of God. Or maybe it's graciousness to people around you. You know, I get, I get to the end of that. This is unscripted, and I find myself saying, okay, all four, right? All four are needed in my life. So let's spend just a moment asking the Lord to begin this work fresh and new today. Father, thank you for giving us instruction and encouragement in verses often left out the boyhood of Jesus and in in understanding there was indeed way so much more beyond that manger scene thank you Lord Jesus for condescending to live as one of us taking
the pain of limitation and frustration and the developmental stages and the learning process to provide for us an example in every way, every possible way. We thank you and we love you and we thank you that you love us. Once more, let's sing. Oh, come let us adore.